I was a junior in high school in 2001 on September 11th. I remember my teacher coming in, um, distraught's not the word, but upset um, and kind of talking about uh, maybe the Twin Towers. I can't remember how it was phrased. The Pentagon hadn't been hit yet. I know that because uh, that happened shortly thereafter. But just talking about about the failure of his generation and, you know, the Twin Towers to me meant nothing at that time. They were just some building in New York City. They weren't the Empire State Building, which I knew of, but the Twin Towers weren't of any relevance um, to me in Louisiana in 2001. But the Pentagon was. The next, the teacher next door comes over and said they hit the, they hit the Pentagon too. And I remember them saying a well-planned out attack or something along those lines, but the, the two teachers. And that's when we realized that Wow, something something bad's happening. Um, and you know, for the rest of the day, I, all but one teacher, who I never understood, let us watch the coverage of nine eleven. Um, and it was a crazy, impactful day, even for someone in Louisiana, a junior a junior in high school who um, had never been to New York City, uh, and the closeness our country felt after that um, was really something to behold. And here we are 20 years later and we've, we've lost that. And it's a, it is a shame. It is a shame. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still talk about these things, these stories, remember what happened and hear from those who were close to the events of that day. And that is why we had on Niles Jorgensen to talk about 9-11, but also What's happened since then? Because so much has changed. He's talked extensively about 9-11 um, on other podcasts, but I wanted to hear a bit about that, but really wanted to hear what's happened since then. Because unfortunately, it's become a politicized event about these first responders and what kind of coverage they get and you know who's responsible for what. So I, I wanted to get the background on that. And so I hope you appreciate that. And you enjoy that today on this day that will be remembered for the rest of my life. Um, obviously not like it was for my guests, but but for anyone that was an American, um, it will be a, a day that we never forget. And so without further ado, let's get to Niall. Well, it is wonderful to have you on the program today. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very well and blessed, Ryan. Thank you very much. Okay, so obviously this podcast is being recorded a few days um, prior to the anniversary of September 11th. It's going to come out on that day, and I, w- I wanted to have you on because um, each year I was a junior in high school when this event happened, um, and each year it happens. There's obviously what happened that day, but then there's this growing, I don't know if mystery is the right word, but a growing confusion about where are the people who were there, who was left behind, and, and what's happened to them, and some of the the fallout, if you will, um, that they've had to deal with over the past twenty years. So let's let's go back briefly just to 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 nine eleven for people who aren't familiar with your story. Uh, where were you at, um, and, and kind of what happened that day? And then let's move forward. Is what's happened since then? Okay, well, in short thing, um, <clears throat> on the morning of September eleventh, two thousand one, I was employed as a New York City firefighter. I uh, had approximately 11 years of service at that point. Uh, prior to that, I was a New York City police officer for two years. 
And uh, I was also a uh, U.S. Army Reserve, New York Army National Guard uh, veteran of eight years. And that particular morning, I was working one of my side jobs. Uh, at the that given morning, I had three jobs at the time, and uh, my wife was a stay-at-home mom taking care of my two young children. And my four-year-old daughter at the time, Emily, said, "Daddy, what truck are you on today? The fire truck, the oil truck, or the boar's head truck?" Um, because that was my employment list at the moment and I said well honey I'm on the oil truck this morning and she said well that's good daddy you'll be safe um she was pretty well aware of the danger of of the profession and um, myself and both of her grandfathers were firefighters in New York City so I, I headed over to um my oil truck job in northern Staten Island uh Quinn Fuel for my first day back actually for the season and it was a beautiful beautiful uh golden skies, blue, blue, I'm some golden sun, blue skies. And uh, I said, wow, it's just too early to be delivering oil. And uh, shortly into the, the morning route, I heard the news radio saying that a plane struck the, the Twin Towers. And um, initially I figured it was a small jet or private plane that had gotten too close and maybe buffeted by some wind into the, into the buildings because that's a very, very windy corridor down there in the Hudson River corridor. And um, in New York City, uh, police and fire and EMS, we don't just respond in off duty unless we're called on something called a recall, which means you're obligated at that point to respond to your duty station for further orders. So I was listening closely and I realized I couldn't just go running in there. So I, I kind of proceeded on my day, but I stayed somewhat glued to the radio and I could see directly across New York Harbor. Um, I could see the smoke and they were saying small plane, but it just seemed to me there's no way there's this much smoke and fire from a small plane. Um, so anyway, uh, all of a sudden the second plane struck and I realized immediately that uh, we were under attack. And um, I had been to the first bombing in 1993 and we trained on it after. And there was actually a manual somewhere in the mid 90s that said not a matter of if, but a matter of when. And it had a bullseye. Uh, put over the Trade Center Towers on the cover. So I raced into my, my command at the time, Ladder Company 114 in Brooklyn, and um, they had already been dispatched to the World Trade Center scene. So I called in my higher command, and they instructed me uh, when, I, when 12 off-duty members responded into the firehouse that we were to commandeer a city bus and get over to a command post uh, either at the Brooklyn Bridge or the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, uh, and that would be given upon further orders. So the men started streaming in off-duty, and uh, we gathered a bunch of equipment, whatever we could. And in that time, we noticed on the TV that there was just this huge pile of, like a cloud, pile of dust, and I realized, because there was a lot of background noise and guys were talking about what we were going to do and where we were headed, we came to realize that um, one of the towers had just gone down. And uh, I had previously heard on the department radio, my, my assigned ladder company 114, um, the commander that day was Lieutenant Dennis Oberg. And uh, he basically on the Manhattan radio frequency said, Tally Ho is, uh, that was our nickname, 114 Tally Ho is 1084, which means on scene at the command post. And uh, so I knew they were there. And, um, as we proceeded to take a city bus, gentleman wouldn't give up the bus. He, he drove us. We were heading over the Brooklyn Bridge uh, with about 35 of us. 
and I would say just about on the mid-span of the Brooklyn Bridge, the second tower came down um, and we were fully aware that our colleagues were, were all there and, and amongst it. So we, there was an immediate, uh, I guess you could say like a pall of just sadness and, and shock and disbelief and uh, guilt because we realize now that many of our friends were probably dead and we weren't. Uh, still to this day, I live with that guilt that I didn't get there on time to, to help them. Uh, but then again, I think it, it might have spared my life. So we proceeded into our assignments to search and rescue. Um, and we stayed pretty much through the next morning till daylight. And by that point in time, we were all just basically overcome with dust and couldn't breathe, couldn't see. Uh, there was pulverized glass. There was uh, smoke, you know, concrete. Uh, it was just a whole soup of, of toxins. And we, we became literally ineffective at our job. Um, just we were useless at that point after that many hours. So we took another bus back through the battery. Oh, yes. Yeah. So just, just for uh, something I've, I've wondered about for some time, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, a guy from our church went up there to help with kind of the rescue. He was a, I don't remember if he was a firefighter or a medical guy or whatever, but if I remember correctly, he said that the rubble was like 40 feet high. And I've, I've never, I don't think I've ever, ever been able to verify that. Is that kind of how tall some of the buildings fall down? Is it like 40, 50 feet of, of just pure rubble there? Because at home we were like, oh man, it, it doesn't look like that much rubble. But he said, when you got there, it was like four stories worth of just debris that's there that you're having to try to rummage through. Is that kind of an accurate description of what was, what, what the tower's remnants was left of? Uh, I would say somewhat accurate. Uh, according to our, I guess, familiarity with the building and the site, most of us deemed it to be about seven stories. Seven stories, okay. there. And, even higher. Okay. And that was also, yeah, but keeping in mind, that was when you were at a certain point, you were down in a crevasse. Mm. Uh, you know, give or, give or take at any given time, yeah, there was probably no, no less than four stories. But at, at some points, I would say the highest point was possibly 10 stories. Wow. So you took a formerly 110-story building with multiple basements and sub-basements that was now just as high as, as a routine uh, project building in New York City. And uh, yeah, so that, that, and it was actually quite haunting because um, as we went into search, there was almost an eerie silence at certain points. And then you would just hear almost like a hissing or a wind. And what that ended up being was uh, ruptured gas lines and water lines. And I remember that night, probably two in the morning, um, I was off to a, a pretty remote side of it, I guess you can say, because there was a lot of guys that were focused in on one, one spot where there was a couple of Port Authority police officers that, by the grace of God, were still alive and were, were retrieved. So what we started doing is we branched off to other areas that weren't being, at the time, addressed. And I remember this older firefighter uh, from my dad's old truck, 172. Uh, my dad was a, a proud 34-year veteran of FDMY. And I remember the guy saying, hey, kid, what do you hear? And I said, I really don't hear anything. What do you, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, that's what I'm saying. What do you hear? I said, well, I hear some hissing of you know, gas lines. And in the distance, I can hear there's a motion alarm on our uh, Scott Air Pack, which is self-contained breathing apparatus. And that's what firefighters use to go into a building um, and 
lets them breathe. But on that device, on that mechanism, there's a, a motion sensor. And if you stop moving for 30 seconds, it emits a shriek. So other firefighters can now zero in on where you are and um, basically try to come and retrieve you. And in the distance, you could hear multiple uh, pass alarms just, just wailing on full cycle, which means that the firefighter hadn't turned it off and no one found him and turned it off. So those were some of our missing guys. But it was very difficult to discern where exactly that was coming from at that point. And we came across a couple of uh, handbags from some of the ladies that were victims and some various shoes. And it was just kind of strange because there was no humans attached to them. And I just remember this older firefighter looking at me saying, kid, no one's coming out of here. They're all dead. And I, I, uh, I couldn't really process that right at, at, at the time it was, it was at like, uh, I don't know, surreal, I guess you can say, because normally we retrieve a full body and if it's a car wreck or a fire or a drowning or, you know, I mean, sometimes these folks are horribly disfigured or burned beyond recognition, but we still normally retrieve a body. And we started realizing early on that, there weren't many bodies coming out of here because the, the physics involved just tore these bodies, these humans apart. And I remember on the third day, um, just teaming up with one of the many, many search dog teams that had responded from around the country. And the gentleman told us that we had a hit, that the spot we were on, there was someone in there. And we started furiously digging and it was hot and it was a bunch of just dust and concrete and uh, cue decking and rebar and just, you know, mangled together like a, it almost looked like a tornado, uh, the outfall of a tornado. And we dug and dug for probably four to five hours, cutting metal, digging with our hands furiously in the hopes that there was somebody under there, you know, calling for help. And I remember the dog then getting another hit and starting to bark. And it, it, I don't want to sound disrespectful to those who were lost, but it almost looked like just some food matter rolled in dirt, like as if it was some, some beef or chopped meat and just in a, in a corner underneath this steel. And, and the, the search and rescue guy says, okay, you've got it, bag it. And I just said, sir, are you messing with us? Like, what, what do you mean we've got it? I said, that's, that's not a person. And he stopped me and he said, listen, uh, I don't want to hurt you here, but you're not coming out of this finding fully intact human beings. This, this is someone's loved one and we're going to identify it by, by DNA. And I just remember after bagging the human remains and saying a little prayer over it, I was so overcome with anger and, and frustration and I cursed out loud and because I, I realized the destruction that these evil people that hated us so much because we're free, that this evil that they inflicted upon these, these innocent souls. And the sad part about it is half those people who died that day, the 2,977 souls that were lost, just, just about half of them have been identified. And half of them have never been identified. There, there wasn't enough human remains that were retrieved 
or they just weren't identifiable. And uh, so, so looking back now, I'm sort of glad that I was in that situation on that second or third day to hopefully give a family some closure. Um, we, we continued on our search and rescue mission and probably about four to five days later, um, I'm thinking more like five or six days, I think the department in the city finally officially recognized that no other live victims were coming out of the World Trade Center and they were now deemed uh, dead. They, they were no longer missing. You know, although the families clung to the hopes that we were still gonna get them out of there, um, that was not possible. It was just after that many days of being covered in all this debris without proper air and, and water, some food, they, they couldn't survive. Well, so yeah, at yeah, that point it became of, a recovery mission. Yeah, that's part of why I was asking about the height of the rubble. I, I wanted to verify, but also it helps for people who weren't there, think about people being buried. You could be buried literally 30 to 40 to 50, 60 feet beneath rubble and just the, the time it would take to get out and the danger involved. Were you there when President Bush flew in? I actually was. Um, strange enough, I was only about, I was in a work area uh, that ended up being only about 50, 60 feet from where he got up on that pile and gave a speech. And I remember one of the um, on-scene commanders you know, calling everybody in, you know, gather in like they, once in a while they would stop the work and they would give us a safety briefing or an update. And um, one of the on-scene commanders said, hey, I need everybody here, you know, forthwith, which means right now. And I look up and I see an older firefighter and I see this gentleman, you know, he was wearing a windbreaker. If I remember correctly, it was like a light brown or a tan windbreaker. And I'm like, man, that guy looks like President Bush. Excuse me. Uh, looked just like President Bush. And then all of a sudden he started speaking on the bullhorn and I'm like, holy crap, that is President Bush. You know, um, the morale that it brought, his his being there and his speech, just the place erupted. And we we realized that we had a commander in chief that cared about us and loved us. And, you know, I know there's a lot of ugliness with politics and and, you know, especially now. But, you know, when when you're a military guy or a first responder and your commander in chief or your high, you know, your high level commander comes out to, to just motivate you and say, hey, keep going. We've got your back. We're going to get this. It was probably one of the high points of that whole uh, that whole time. You know, I call it the 912 theory um, on the 12th of September. The West Side Highway, which is the, the road that's adjacent to World Trade Center, was lined with thousands and thousands of people that were holding signs and American flags. And they were waving and they were hugging us as we were responding into our duty assignments. And uh, then they started setting up, you know, volunteer canteens where they were bringing water and, and juice and just just, you know, little basics just to keep you hydrated. And I just remember that sense of unity, those those two instances when the president was there and then the, on the day of 9-12, I never felt such a sense of unity in my life. And I wish I can get it back because I feel like it's all kind of faded away, uh, you know, with all the division going on right now. I just, I say to people, as sad as 9-12 was, it was the day after the worst thing to ever take place in our country. It was actually a joyous, happy day because it was so filled with love and unity. And 
I, I actually pray. I'm a faithful guy, and I pray at night that uh, God can send us back to us because we we need it. Yeah, it, it's it's striking when you think about that because I think you're right. It's probably in my lifetime, uh, born in '85, so it's probably the peak of American unity that I've ever seen. Um, and of course, compared to today, to some 20 years later, we've we're, we're nowhere near that. And it, this goes to show you how quickly. Um, things can change for good or or for for worse. So you go through this process um, of of you know trying to save people, recovery, search and rescue. Um, generally speaking, how long does that process go? Is that a week, two weeks, two months before they they send you guys back to regular duty, and then um, they bring in whoever else they bring in to to finish up the cleanup work? Well, we never did get back to regular duty in those months um i mean in a sense we did but it lasted nine months uh i believe the close down date was uh may 30th vote two was the 31st um forgive me for not remembering that exact day but i believe it was may 30th but so what happened was they would rotate guys in and out there would be certain platoons that would be strictly there to search and then you know we had a man the engines and ladder companies and squads and rescues uh you know, New York City has about 370 frontline responding units, uh, maybe even more, including chiefs. And that's just fire. And EMS, you have uh, another couple hundred units a day. So we had to get back to business in the city. Um, you know, you're talking about seven, eight million people. And then, you know, with the influx of people working prior to COVID, uh, 10 million people that needed services. So, it was a it was a balancing act, um, but we handled it. And um, and then what we would do is the guys that were assigned to, to the fire firehouse duty, you know, still responding on the trucks. We would then get off shift and, and a lot of us would head over there on our own time because our friends were missing and we wanted to bring them home. Uh, me specifically, I lost my childhood best friend, John Sharp um, from Engine Company 201. And uh, I, I had come home about four days after the incident, after 9-11, I finally got home and my wife said, you know, I have some good news. We're, we're going to have another baby, our third baby, which is my my little beautiful girl, Catherine. And um, and I said to her, yeah, that's that's great news. But, you know, John's wife's pregnant, too, but he's he's been deemed dead. And that broke my heart. I, I had so much guilt. And then. In May of 2002, John's third son, uh, John Jr., was born, and he never got to hold him. And my little Catherine, or my little cat, uh, as I call her, she, you know, she came into my life with blessing. And my other two kids were still young, Paul and, and Emily. And and I'm holding my children and saying, I, I, why? Like, why am I giving this blessing, this gift? And why is John not? And why are all these other guys that just didn't get to come home? So we kept looking for them, uh, regardless if we were assigned or not, until until May of 02. And luckily for, for John's family, he was found on Christmas Eve uh, of 01. And his, his Catholic burial mass was on uh, New Year's Eve of 01. And I had the high honor of holding the American flag on his honor guard. And I remember it was just so cold and we were freezing and we were standing at attention for an hour and it was... I think it was about, you know, 15 degrees out and none of us would, would dare move or come out of, out of line holding those flags because we didn't want to disrespect John. Uh, 
So he was one of the lucky few, I guess you could say, that was recovered and his family was able to get that closure. And then um, basically from the months of September on, they started bringing in heavy equipment, uh, big, big construction grapplers and excavators. And every time some remains were found, they would stop the machines and we would go in and respectfully take those remains and put them in a, um, you know, a Stokes basket, which is to carry people, victims, and we would cover it with an American flag and we'd respectfully process it out. At the time then there was a ramp coming up from the, as we called it, the pit. And every single person that was found, everything would stop and hundreds of responders would stop and stand at attention as the caisson proceeded by with the six or eight guys who were carrying those remains. And we'd come to a salute. And once those remains left the site, we'd go back to work. And, you know, one of the one of the really painful things for us right now as responders and many, many responders are veterans. Uh, we see the, the desecration of the flag and the lack of respect for the flag and, and the lack of respect for responders. You know, um, we went from heroes to zeros in, in a very short time. And I wouldn't lie to you and tell you that every responder is a great, great person. But I will say that 99.5% of the people I've had the, the honor of working by, beside uh, in my 24-year career, they were wonderful people. They were willing to give up every one of their tomorrows so someone can go home tonight. And now it's like we're public enemy number one, especially the police officers. And it's such a thankless job. And, you know, when you look at what they make, um, it's sad. They don't make a lot of money at all. And they're under such scrutiny. The, the second they make a maneuver and it turns out to be a bit of a mistake or, or they go a little bit too aggressive, they're done. Their career is over. But then you get these career felons, these, these zeros who give nothing to society, absolutely nothing. And they're venerated and raised up to hero status and they're almost worshipped. And it's it's actually very, very bizarre for me to digest that, that the worst of society are held up as the best and the most selfless, brave, just courageous people are spit on and assaulted and beat up. It's it's that's got to change or, or we're, we're in for some really big problems ahead. Uh, there's a breakdown. There's just a total breakdown in respect and civility. And I, I think the lunatics are just leading the asylum now. I, I My son's 22 and there's no way in hell I'd want him to be a police officer. And he would be a great, great police officer because of his disposition and his love of people. But there's no way I'd want him to do it now. Why do you think that is? That that the that the conversation around I, I think fire policemen for sure I would agree with I don't think firefighters at least my part of the country um, I don't think firefighters um, get a negative rap so much but police officers um, seem to get um, it's a lot different than it was on 11 what what's changed what's changed is that we're making excuses for morons right I'm sorry that's that's probably going to get me canceled saying that but people keep making the same mistakes and they commit the same crimes and they just do the, the same acts and they expect a different outcome. You know, we, we're not progressing. 
you know, I hear all these people talking about progress and change and this and that. We're regressing. Um, you know, I understand that some police officers uh, maybe go, they go a little overboard in the heat of the moment. But, you know, when I was a cop, they used to say the reasonable man has nothing to hide. If a cop says to you, hey, stop, I, I need to see your hands. Take your hands out of your pockets. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Let the guy vet your ID. Let him figure out who you are because it's three in the morning and he's by himself and you're in a car possibly loaded up with four or five other guys with possible weapons, with possible bad things on your mind. So, of course, that cop is going to be hyper vigilant. But the minute you take off and you start fighting and you grab at a police officer's weapon, well, guess what? What do you think is going to happen? That cop has to defend himself. It's that quick. It's a split second. If he doesn't react, he's dead. There's criminals don't give you any second guesses or any, any, you know, they, they give you no room at all. They are, they know immediately they are out to hurt you or kill you, but a police officer has no idea what he has come upon. So our alleged leaders in politics and society and sports and entertainment, they're so quick to judge these guys. You know, they've, they've never walked a mile in their shoes, so to speak. And, uh, you know, there's an old time rock star. I won't mention his name because I don't want him suing me. But, you know, he comes off as the everyman and he loves military and he loves police. And that's how he jettisoned himself to stardom. But the minute a cop steps out of line or something, he's one of the first people to get up there in public and rip the guy. Well, as far as I know, he's got no experience. He lives in a, in a, in a $50, excuse me, a $50 million mansion with security guards. There's no idea. So these people who have no idea, no sense of empathy whatsoever because they've never done anything for anybody else are now judge, jury, and trial for this police officer who had to make a split-second decision. And you know, Ryan, what really kills me is there's, there's officers being murdered, shot to death every single day. And firefighters and medics are getting shot at just for doing their job as well. But the police more because they are actually intervening in crimes and you hear nothing. You hear nothing about it in the mainstream media. Absolutely zilch. But the minute some guy who's got 37 felony convictions and won't put his hands behind his back or punches an officer in the face and lunges for his gun, gets shot and killed. Now it's a racist incident. And I'm sorry. I've seen too many of my friends give up their lives for people they didn't even know had nothing in common with and we're not the same race so me personally i'm probably getting canceled out of it i don't care at this point i'm an old guy i'm tired of it we need to judge people by their souls by their character not by their skin not by their religion or their their affiliation of whatever it is they're affiliated with it's how you behave in society and in honesty if we can't pull this back and you look at how fast things are falling apart we're in trouble. We're, you know, I, I don't want to go political, but you look at China and they're just sitting there giggling because it's going to be so easy. American people are fighting over nonsense right now. We're fighting in the streets, throwing things at each other over all of these polarized uh, subjects in politics. Right. I won't get into them because, again, I don't want to, you know, but we, we, we're fighting over craziness. And we're not unified. 
And China's going to walk in here in about 10 or 15 years and just push us aside and take it over. And we're going to say, well, what, what happened? We didn't see this coming. Well, I see it coming. It's, it's, it's coming. Yeah, there, there is a, a definite sense in which, um, well, there's a couple of things, it seems. One, um, we have genuinely bad people. And then you have people who, on the, other, on the other end of the spectrum, make mistakes. And there's a bunch of people in the middle, right? And yes, and we don't, we don't stop and try to figure out which is which in which scenario. And that makes it very dangerous because now you're going, well, everyone is either uh, makes a mistake and they get a pass or they're a terrible human and they don't get a pass. And, and so you, you've, we've blurred the lines of how to deal with people um, that, 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 you know, in that spectrum. And that, that's, that's, that is the problem I think that you're, you're alluding to there. So, but I do want to go back to the, to the firefighters, um, the, 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 the responders, because this is the kind of the question you, you've outlined this, this time period from September to, to May in which they were, they were helping clean up, um, you know, going to find that their lost friends, loved ones. Um, and then post then, there's a lot of coverage. It seems like every few years about um, the veterans bill. I think I keep saying veterans, the, the first responders bill, um, from Congress to help. What has happened? Separate truth from fiction first. What's happened to these men and women who helped the cleanup effort um, as far as their health, their physical condition? And then what has been happening on Capitol Hill as far as um, the bills and the the subsidies or the, well, I don't know what the right, right turn is. So I don't want to say it wrong, but what, whatever the, the packages are, what has been happening there? Well, Lucky for responders and recovery workers, there now is in law the James Zadroga Act, which was named after a courageous detective, Jimmy Zadroga, who subsequently died of lung disease, uh, advanced lung disease, I believe it was in 2006. And the city administration at that time actually tried to deny his death claim, saying that he died of an opiate overdose and not advanced lung disease. But what it is, is Jimmy was basically in hospice. He was dying, suffering. His uh, medical care recommended that he grind up his pain pills and snort them and ingest them, uh, and it would give him quicker relief. So upon his autopsy, they found in his lung lining, the talcum, uh, I guess, covering from the pills, which is found in drug abusers when they do autopsies. So the city denied his claim. So his father, who was a retired police chief, was outraged because he, know how, he knows how much time Jimmy spent down there. So he took it upon himself to launch a mission to cover responders and recovery workers. And he specifically joined up with a gentleman, John Field, from the Feel Good Foundation. And John was a heavy demolition expert who was brought down to uh, the ground zero within a day or so of the actual collapse. And he was one of those gentlemen who was assisting in removing the rubble so we could find the bodies. John was in an accident, a piece of steel, crushed his foot, basically took off half his foot. He ended up in the hospital for weeks, developed sepsis, and upon leaving the hospital, was hit with over $600,000 in medical bills that no one would pay. He was left virtually destitute. And he realized that in his good efforts, he was now being punished. So John, with a bunch of other responders who started getting medical bills and Mr. Zadroga went upon themselves to say, we're going now to Washington and we're going to shame these politicians into doing what they're supposed to do, which is their job. You know, it was funny. They were all down there, the politicians to take pictures with us, you know, the days after nine, nine 11. 
but when it came to paying our medical bills and you know taking care of that they all seemed to disappear and not pick up the phone i had the honor of, of attending just a couple times but i was in washington with john and this wonderful wonderful fireman named ray pfeiffer and ray was literally dying of terminal cancer going down to washington multiple times every couple of weeks in his wheelchair on oxygen to shame these politicians into signing off on this legislation, which for months and months and months they refused to do. We finally, with the luck of, excuse me, with the hard work and some luck on our side, Chief Sedroga and John, uh, John Feel, and with the, the help of the actor John Stewart and a few others, they were actually able to get the legislation passed. So. When I first, I, I have leukemia. Uh, I, I was come down sick in 2011, which was deemed from my service at 9-11. Technically have an incurable form of leukemia. It was very, very advanced. Uh, I had a fire department doctor, who was my doctor on the outside, tell me that uh, I had a huge spleen, which was probably from drinking because that's all we did after 9-11. And my, uh, my blood pressure on a given day when I went down, and this was a month after they pulled me off the truck and said my bloods were critically bad. My blood pressure was 240 over 140, and she stated to the paramedic who responded to the fire department clinic, where, mind you, she didn't even show up for my appointment to give me a differential diagnosis. She told the paramedic I was probably having an anxiety attack linked to PTSD because, as she said, they all have it from being down there. So this was the treatment I received from my own doctor. Uh, this paramedic rushed me to Methodist Hospital in Brooklyn, and I was told I basically had about 48 hours to live. I had a very rare, very advanced leukemia. The only way they can get ahead of it was they were going to give me two and a half years worth of chemotherapy treatment compressed into seven days, burn out my bone marrow in the hopes that my seedling marrow would regenerate. I was not a candidate for a stem cell transplant. So if this did not work, I was a dead man. And by the grace of God, I spent about a month in Brooklyn Methodist and they saved my life. I then had doctors who knew what they were doing, who cared, who cared about me and they saved me. And I'm here now speaking to you 11 years later in remission. Uh, I've had several occasions where I've been on the verge of relapse. Uh, I've since had multiple health issues since taking the vaccines, which reacted with what was going on in my body from the cancer but these people saved my life and they did it with such kindness and caring that I, I will never ever forget them and my daughter my oldest daughter Emily is now a nurse because of them she's an emergency room nurse and a mobile intensive care nurse she was so impressed with my nursing care that she decided to devote her life to that so, so that's the silver lining now? of my I am technically Yes, I, I am in full remission. Uh, the, the kind of, I guess, catch to my cancer is it's never technically cured. Uh, I have cancer cells in my body, but they're, they're at a, a very, very minimal level. They're, they're inactive. Um, and the scary thing is my cancer is normally found in elderly men who've worked in uh, oil refineries, uh, specifically with uh, kerosene and uh, diesel fuel. Uh, which is jet fuel is, is kerosene based. But the thing is, most of these gentlemen usually get sick at about 75, 80 years old. So 
uh, there's, there's luck with getting into remission. The problem is due to my age, uh, how long will I last in that remission? But the first few years was a mind game. It was very, very difficult to get past every morning and say, is this the last day? Is this the last day? Now it's, it's in the rear view mirror. I try not to think about it ever. Um, I do go every quarter for a, a full sc uh, screening and scanning. And um, that's kind of a frightening day, you know, a few times a year. But uh, for me, every day is a blessing because unfortunately so many of my colleagues have since passed and have since died from cancers and respiratory. And now the kicker is many of them are coming down with serious autoimmune diseases, which are not covered under the federal legislation. So I believe John Feel is going to try to go back out and, and try to get those covered. Um, the kicker of this all, Ryan, is I was actually being sued for like $150,000 for medical, outstanding medical bills because at the time in 2011, my, uh, my insurance did not cover my situation because it was deemed work-related. And workers' comp did not recognize blood cancers as line of duty. So I was in a limbo until John Feel and Chief Sadroga got this legislation passed and then my medical bills went away. But if it wasn't for them, I, I probably would still be paying those bills off. So going through all of this, the, the cancer, the remission, um, your, your buddies, some are passed away that day. Some have passed away since. Some have various levels of health you hear war veterans talk about the bond that war can create, but it's a unique time because a war is a, a finite period of time. Talk to me about the, 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 the survivors, the firefighters who survived. Do you guys, are y'all bonded together still to this day or, or is that bond kind of um, gone away over the years just because of life and the different things or what do you talk to the other firefighters regularly? What's, what's a day or a week like with um, you and your buddies from, uh, the fire department? Well, I guess it's similar to life. There's certain people that you just keep near and dear forever. There's people that you worked with, uh, you laughed with, you enjoyed their company, but you know, you kind of faded, faded away. You know, life moves on. Uh, at first, when I didn't hear from people, when I was sick, I was upset, I was hurt. And I'm like, don't they care? But then I realized that it's just life. And I mean, I have some colleagues now that are sick and maybe I should reach out more often to them, but sometimes they get tired of the, of the, you know, repetitiveness. How you doing? I'm good. I, you know, they, they don't want to talk about it all the time. So my father always said, you're going to go through the, the job working with hundreds of guys, but in the end, you're going to have a handful that are just your guys that you, you constantly keep in contact with. You constantly talk to and he's right. You know, I have about five guys that I just six guys, really. Uh, I call them my six. And my wife knows that those are the guys when I die, I want to carry in my coffin. Uh, I love them that much. And I don't expect everyone to reach out. You know, life has moved on. But but these six guys, you know, not more than a few days or a week or two weeks will go by where we don't talk. And just yesterday, I heard from a guy who I loved and respected, but he was having a tough time. And he kind of went under the radar as we speak. And I wanted, you know, I reached out and didn't hear back. And I understood that. And out of the blue, he called my phone yesterday. And when his name popped up on my phone, 
I was like a school kid in a schoolyard. I could, I'm like, oh my God, you know, and, and we, I immediately opened up the call with a joke that we used to always have an inside joke. And he burst out laughing and he just said, Hey, are you going to be there? 9-11? Uh, you know, I, I really want to get together and talk. And I said, brother, I can't wait to give you a big old hug. I miss you so much. And at the same time, we said to each other, I love you. And that's something that, you know, big burly firemen aren't really supposed to say, right? But since that day, since 9-11, the guys, your handful, your six, you tell each other you love each other all the time because uh, you never know when you're going to get that call. Um, I had a gentleman that I would say, you know, we, we didn't drink beer together and, and, and hang out, but, but every time we saw each other, it was a big hug and how you doing and a 20 minute conversation. And he just died a week and a half ago, brain cancer. And I didn't even know he was sick. And I was heartbroken because I can only imagine he was only sick a couple months. It was a very, very severe case. It was rapid. And I can only imagine the fear he was going through. And I hope that there was plenty of people there to see him through that. And I'm sure there was because he, he had a big loving family. But every once in a while, I get a phone call from someone I don't even know. But he's a fellow firefighter from a different side of the city. You know, I was I was Brooklyn. I worked in Brooklyn and, and Manhattan and Staten Island for my, my career. Never really worked in the Bronx or Queens. And every once in a while, I get a phone call from a Bronx or a Queens fireman who said, hey, brother, how you doing? You don't know me, but I'm, you know, I'm from engine such and such. And uh, I, I have a cancer that's very similar to yours or it's the same as yours. Um, do you have any advice? And I'll just say to them, just try not to be scared because the fear of cancer is the worst. And it doesn't matter which cancer you have, it's, it's scary. And now the guys know in the back of their minds that the amount of people who've died since 9-11 from illnesses has surpassed by hundreds the amount of people that died on that day. You know, we lost 2977, 2,977 souls that day, 343 New York City firefighters, 37 Port Authority police officers, 23 New York City police officers and 12 EMS and federal agents who, who passed away also in the rescue operation that morning. Since then, we have over 3,000, I believe it's up to about 3,300 first responders and recovery workers that have died since then from illnesses. So when guys come down with their illness, they know in the back of their mind, hey, so-and-so didn't make it. Jimmy didn't make it. Johnny didn't make it. Joey didn't make it. They know. They remember the fear and they remember the struggle. And some of these guys suffered. You know, there's there's tons of brain cancer right now. There's tons of blood cancers, uh, really, really advanced lung diseases. And now they say there's an onset of dementia. They're calling it 9-11 uh, dementia or 9-11 syndrome where, uh, I'm going to be 54 a couple weeks. And I was, believe it or not, you know, sort of a mid-level young guy down there back then. So now a lot of my coworkers and my friends who are in their 60s and 70s, they're seeing an onset of dementia and prostate cancer and, and very specific diseases that are very, very high in number. But again, no one wanted to admit that. It was like with vaccine injuries. Nobody wanted to admit that some people are getting sick from the vaccines. It's a fact. I'm one of them. But 
people were getting sick in droves from 9-11 and there's still people and politicians that are trying to discount that because, because it comes with a cost. Who's going to pay for the health care of that person who was down there 21 years ago, who put everything on the line, everything they had, and now in their moment of need, they're being left behind. But again, thankfully, we have that federal coverage, but that eventually will run out. And, you know, the one thing we would love to have is advanced cancer screening. You know, the city of New York, you know, they, they kind of like make themselves feel okay with it. They give us very, very basic screening and they're okay with that. But you go to these other fire departments in Florida and California, and they get a very, very specific cancer screen every year that they're employed. We don't get that. And it's just too much money because there was 10,000 of us that morning and another 10,000 retirees. There's 20,000 people that responded that just on the fire department. End. Now factor in the police end, the EMS end, the nurses, the doctors, you know, the, the dog handlers. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that are potentially going to run up a medical bill. So hopefully they'll all get the care they need in their, in their time of need, but it is not slowing down. 21 years later, they're, they're just no slowing down in the amount of people coming down with these illnesses. So a few years ago, uh, I guess it was during the Trump administration, if I remember correctly, there was a big uh, kerfuffle on watch on Capitol Hill. Uh, John Stewart was down there um, and they were accusing people of not wanting to extend the current bill that was on the floor. Uh, Mitch McConnell, if I remember, said that it was going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Um, when, when we see these stories, people like myself who on the outside aren't familiar um, with the ins and outs and, and it, like you are, how much of this is a Republican issue, a Democrat issue? Is it both sides? What's really happening on the posturing that we see from Capitol Hill? Posturing we see is that they're all liars. Regardless of political affiliation, they all have an agenda. They all have a constituency to placate and they'll look at you and smile and shake your hand and they'll do completely the opposite. When I was down in Washington with John Field and Ray Pfeiffer, God rest him, and, and you know the other guys from Feel Good Foundation, we literally would barnstorm these congressmen's office and senators' offices and ask them, why have you not signed on? And we had a retired police officer from Los Angeles who was would not sign it because he said it did not confront his constituents. And as far as he's concerned, it was pork. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? I said, do you know you have 10 constituents from your county who are dying of 9-11 illnesses? It does confront you. And we shamed the guy. We shamed him. One of the police officers who was dying at the time got up out of his wheelchair and said, hey, brother, let's go cop to cop. Like we're back in the midnights in a car in a bad neighborhood. Who's got each other's back? partners right yeah well guess what partner i'm dying and i'm going to be strapped with a half a million dollars of medical bills and i have young children and a wife who's going to pay it and we literally shamed this congressman into tearing up and he signs right then and there but it was all those games that were played and they're constantly played and the people the citizens are the minions are the pawns you know my irish grandmother god rest her used to say it. she said politicians they're all like dirty diapers they're full of shit and they stink and she's right. People are tired of being lied to. We're tired of division. We're tired of all of these just 
they're just so agenda bound and, and screw everybody else. So I, I you know, I'm going to get into some trouble for saying it, but I think half, half of them are just full of crap. And, and they'll, t- they'll try to tie our coverage into another bill. So yes, it could be looked at as pork. Why not just tie our coverage in standalone? This is what it is. It's coverage for responders and survivors and the people who live down there during the time, nothing else. It's not tacked on to some other omnibus bill or transportation bill, or you know, some guy needs a wind farm out in the middle of nowhere. No, just make it its own standalone legislation. So that's why we get frustrated as responders because we, we feel like it's not important enough for every single politician in the United States should be behind this because it's the very best of people that responded that day. It's the same with our military. How in the hell does a guy or a girl who puts it all on the line overseas in the war come back and end up homeless because they can't find a job and they can't find housing? How, how is it that we can't take care of those people but yet we can take care of everybody else who just decides to airdrop in here and say, I need asylum and I need welfare. That it's very frustrating. Take politics out of it. I don't care what party it is. You should be taking care of the people who took care of us. And that's military and that's responders. There's over 7,000 military souls that were lost due to the wars that came from 9-11. And there's thousands and thousands of these young people missing limbs missing just horrible horrible injuries some you can see and some you can't because they're on the inside because it's ptsd and they're just shuffled off to the side of the road like they don't matter and you know i I said this in a past interview someone asked me if you had one wish what would it be and i said well this goes against my irish catholic upbringing it would be to be a billionaire (laughs) <laughs> I actually sat in the same interview chair, right? I had, I had the honor of, of, of being interviewed by Lex Friedman in his mm-hmm. podcast. And a couple of weeks before that, Elon Musk sat in the same chair that I sat in. And I'm saying, you know, man, I'd really love to meet that guy. Aside from I really respect his humility, he, he reminds me of a little kid just looking up at the wonders of the world. And I, I feel like a similar character. But if I could, if I could be a guy like him, I'd say, Elon, let's join forces. Let's buy an old military base and let's call it Veterans Village, right? And let's let all these people who need a home, these people who gave everything to the country that made you rich, super, super rich, and let them be self-sufficient. You know, the one thing in the military is they teach you to be squared away in every respect. I guarantee you, if you took an old military base and you let these, these vets who were down on their luck take it over, and live in it, they would maintain it, they would clean it, they would, they would police it, they would do a great job. But nobody will give them that chance. But we'll give away billions of dollars to foreign countries, and, and God bless them, they're at war, they're this, they're that, I can understand. But what about our warriors? And I've spoken to veterans personally that I know, and they feel left behind. So if I had that one chance yeah, I'd just like to be a billionaire or hang out with one and say, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put smiles on warriors' faces and we're going to take care of them because they freaking deserve it. What's the one thing you wish people like myself who weren't there in New York on 9-11 or the nine months following better understood about not only that day, but the last 20 plus years? 
I wish that most people had a sense of gratefulness. You, you sound like a grateful individual, but I'm going to be honest with you, Ryan. I, I don't get it a lot in society. We've, we've turned into such a narcissistic, just, just vapid, shallow, uh, everything is in the moment and immediate. And, and, you know, this obsession with, with, uh, social media and, and, you know, people just filming themselves and this and that, and, and, you know, on there complaining about everything. Just, I, I remember one day I was in the in coffee shop and someone was just going off on social media, filming at that moment because the barista ran out of oat milk and what an outrage that was. And they, and I, and I wanted to say, but I didn't, Hey, you know what? Just use friggin' milk or half and half. If that's your biggest gripe and concern of today that they don't have oat milk, we are, we are a pretty lucky individual. And I just feel like there's a sense of, there's definitely some grateful people out there, but I don't think there's enough of them. Like people are so quick to complain. You know, like just recently I called the customer service line to give a huge compliment. And the lady said to me, do you know that's the first time I've ever had that? I said, you're kidding me. She goes, no, I've never had someone call up to compliment. They only complain. And, and that's what we've turned into, I think, in our country is a country of complainers, people who are just looking to be offended and outraged and upset and pissed off and looking to cancel you and I and wreck our lives because we don't agree with them. You know, how hard would it be for someone to just see a responder and walk up and smile and say, hello, how are you? I just want you to have a safe day and I want you to know I appreciate you being out here protecting my family. Or, you know, I, I, I love to walk up to veterans, especially the guys from Vietnam and, and the few that are left from World War II. And I'll throw them a salute and I'll say, thank you for your service. Thank you for making me free and my family. And sometimes they literally will start tearing up when they hear that because it doesn't happen nearly enough. And, you know, just recently, my, my wife and I, we were in a restaurant and there was this older Vietnam veteran and he was disabled. And without letting them know, we bought them dinner, him and his wife, and we left and we made sure that the server took care of it. And part of me wanted to see his reaction, but part of me said, no, that would take away from the decency of it. But I just feel like if we did little random acts of kindness and little random acts of being grateful, just smiling, right? Ryan, do you see anybody smile anymore? Um, you know, I, I just did a, uh, I was blessed to be able to do a lecture for a bunch of school kids in Florida who are interested in 9-11. And I, I drove 600 miles from Tennessee and I couldn't wait to get there, right? And a friend of mine is like, what are you doing? You're driving 1,200 miles, like 20 hours just to talk to some kids. I said, yeah, the fact that they want to learn about our friends who died and what happened that day they were fourth graders and fifth graders. And the questions that they hit me with blew me away. And this one beautiful young boy who has special needs and he's blind, inside my lieutenant's hat, I have a picture of my friend, John Sharp, who died, his mask card and his beautiful smile. And I told the class about that. I said, guys, you know, when, you, when you're having a bad day, I want you to think about my friend, John, because all he did was smile and he brought joy to people. And he helped anyone who needed it. And I said, so if you're not sure of a decision to make, I want you to think of John, put on a smile and do something good. And this little boy asked to touch John's picture in the hat. 
And when he did, he just broke out into this huge smile. And, and I, I, I was hard pressed not to cry, right? Because I, I literally felt the sense of my friend. And I just hope that that sense of goodness and decency can be spread. You know, I, I, I look at these influencers, right? And, and most of the time they're influencing nonsense and, you know, they're just doing it for money, right? Just buy this product, this bikini, this whatever, that. I wish I could be an influencer of good just to leave a daily message to the people who really would respond to it. It's so easy to do a little act of kindness and to smile and say thank you and say please. It's actually contagious. I mean, it's more contagious than the virus. I notice when I hold the door for somebody, two, three, four people behind me are holding the door for somebody, right? Because they realize it's just so easy to do. So I just wish that people can make more of an effort every day to say thank you and to everybody. Someone in a supermarket helps you, medical field, at the gas, you know, gas pump. You know, my friend thinks I'm crazy. When I'm in New Jersey, where my family is, uh, you know, I'm back and forth between New Jersey and Tennessee. And when I'm up in New Jersey, you can't pump your own gas. And every time I fill up, even though I'm getting hit for 120 bucks, I, I give this, I give the gas station attendant a five buck tip because it's hot or it's cold. And that, that just helps make their day a little better. A friend of mine thinks I'm crazy, but he's just cheap. But, <laughs> but you know, when I was a gas pump guy as a kid, you know, when I, I pumped gas for about four years as a, as a kid and, you know, every every dollar or every five dollars, it adds up quick, you know. So just these little random acts of kindness. Um, some someone did a, 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 a story on, on the very famous Captain Patrick Brown of the New York City Fire Department of three truck decorated Vietnam veteran. And she taught her class to do a little Patty Brown every day. Because Patty was known as a man that would just go around every day just doing nice little things for people just to make their day that much better. And that's kind of what I want to steal from that and ask people to do a little Johnny Shark. Just just do a little something nice and smile and uh, we'd be a better world for it. Okay. So um, why don't you tell people a little bit more about what you're doing now, uh, where you want to send them to, um, and how they can support your efforts. Yeah, um, I was lucky enough uh, last year to be involved in a podcast called 20for20podcast.com. And um, we, we did it to do exposure and uh, education about 9-11. And we featured a bunch of folks that, that tried to go above and beyond, uh, you know, at 9-11 or after 9-11. And unfortunately, many of those folks have passed on. Uh, that, that has since kind of finished up and gone by the wayside. So, uh, what I'm currently trying to do is, uh, just do some outreach, uh, with Tunnel to Towers. I, I like to try to attend their benefits and I like to constantly reach out to family members and friends and ask them to donate to their foundation because Tunnel to Towers is a wonderful group of people. They, they basically build homes for, any military or first responder killed in action or any first responder or military that's seriously injured and with life altering injuries, uh, they'll build them a smart home. Or if, if the family needs to, they just pay off their mortgage to, to, you know, lessen the burden for them. Uh, and that was formed 
for a firefighter named Stephen Siller, who was a colleague of mine. And Stephen was from Squad Company 1 in Brooklyn. And he was off duty, like myself. And he raced to the Battery Tunnel in Brooklyn with his pickup and wasn't allowed to proceed any further. So he grabbed his fire gear, 60 pounds of gear, and he ran through the Battery Tunnel to meet up with his squad company at, at the World Trade Center. And they subsequently were all killed. So there's a foundation now, and in perpetuity, they're going to do kind deeds like Stephen, who had five children. He wasn't obligated to go in there that morning, but he did. And um, so I'm trying my best to to just, you know, uh, educate people about that. And, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to find my next niche, I guess. Uh, I had to retire from the cancer, and I, I reinvented myself uh, as a stagehand in the TV and filming union in New York. And uh, since COVID, I kind of had to lay low. And now I'm virtually uh, unemployable because I cannot get the boosters, uh, booster shots due to my health. So I'm in that limbo of, okay, you know, what do I do? So I'm trying my best to just give my, give of my time where it's needed to various good organizations. Um, I'm also involved in a foundation for a young man uh, was a friend of my son who who passed away tragically from mental illness uh, three years ago. It's called the Cully Strong Foundation. And what we try to do is we try to get guide dogs, uh, therapy dogs for folks who are suffering PTSD. And they find that these folks, when they have a dog, uh, it just improves their condition greatly. So um, I'm just in love with trying to help them out and, and get some dogs for people. And, um, I'm just, uh, Ryan, I don't know. I'm just scratching around looking for the next, uh, where am I needed? Um, you know, I, I would love to maybe get back into the podcast world and just, uh, you know, have a show where I, I get to just spread goodness. Um, talk about people who are out there now risking their lives and uh, doing good deeds. You know, I, I follow a lot of sites where they'll, they'll bring light to, uh, responders and medical personnel that do great deeds and it's incredible how virtually none of these make the mainstream press a absolutely none of them but the minute they screw up it's everywhere so i would love to get with some folks and um if they believed in me enough to just be that voice and it's not for money i i i'm i'm in a good spot in life um it's just to give back you know give back to be just to be grateful for my fortune of, of being alive, you know, 11 years of remission is like, doesn't happen for a lot of people and it's happened for me. So I would love to be involved where I can just give back to charities that really need the help. But, but I want to be an ambassador of good because, you know, turn on the news, turn on any website, any news site. It's just about all bad news. It, it just gets depressing after a while. Um, I've actually tried to just go off the radar with that stuff. And I feel like it's so much less stressful to not know what's going on than to follow it diligently every day. Um, so I guess, and, and obviously just uh, spending time with my family, you know, my kids are adults now and I just love being around them, my wife. And I still have my beautiful parents who were the biggest influence in my life. They taught me uh, what it is to be a good human being, what it is to work hard and try not to complain. So I just love spending time with them, family gatherings, meals, uh, 
it's just such a blessing. It's such a blessing to have people that love you and that you love. And uh, and one other thing, if uh, you know, if someone like Elon Musk or or some some big powerful person would would want to, I'd really love to just get involved helping helping out the veterans and helping out these you know some responders around the country they'll suffer these horrible horrible injuries and their benefits uh, aren't as generous as ours uh in the city you know and I, I would just love to be able to go around the country and find individual cases of folks who are really hurting and who need a hand up and i'd love to be able to try to do that so and I think the world needs a hug booth, right? We're not allowed to hug anymore. Uh, <laughs> even the other day when I was with that school class, you know, the kids wanted to give me a hug. And I looked at the teacher, you know, with a look of askance of like, is this okay? And she nodded and said, yes, absolutely. Right. Because a couple of years back I was working on a film set and uh, one of, one of the uh, crew that I hadn't seen since like teenagehood, the young lady who I was friends with and adored uh, as a kid, we were just good friends and I hadn't seen her in like 35 years. And I went up and gave her a big hug and I was actually threatened with termination for hugging her. If I did that again, we were both threatened with termination. And I said to the producer, but I, I know this girl since we're four years old. And he, he just didn't want to hear it. I mean, that's just upside down world. You, you're not allowed to hug somebody that you've known your whole life. Uh, so yeah, I think it would be great to have hug booths in uh, every big city in America because uh, years back I worked on a TV show called Rescue Me and I was lucky enough to be the driver of a truck for a gentleman named Dennis Leary. And Dennis is a wonderful guy. He, he's an actor and a comedian. And he does a great amount of things for the fire service. And uh, I was the mustache behind the windshield for seven seasons. We had a blast. Well, all my buddies were on the crew from the fire department. So we were pretending to be each other on our days off working on a TV show about the fire department. And as I got to know the crew and the folks working there better, you, you become really good friends because you spend 14, 15 hours on a set, you know, three, four days a week or two days a week, depending on when they needed us. You become close. And some people at the start of the shift would actually come over so I could give them a hug. And at first I thought it was a setup, like they were, you know, where's the punchline? And, and they would say to me, no, you don't understand. I just had a bad two hour commute in traffic. I left at 4.30 this morning. It took me two hours to get here. You give me a hug and all that stress goes away. And it's true. And, and I used to actually look forward to giving these hugs, you know, there was nothing dubious behind it. It was just strictly, I'm making someone's day a little better. And it felt so great. So uh, maybe we can, uh, we can get someone to back us with a whole chain of, of hug rules for free. There you go. That would be awesome. Um, okay. Well, we will follow along. We'll link to the 20 for 20 podcast, uh, of course, in the show notes and all of those stuff at ryanraysenior.com. Thank you for your time. And thank you for, for sharing, which I'm sure is, um, you know, not the most pleasant thing to talk about losing, losing loved ones and friends and um, all of that. And, and all that went into the, the hard, 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 hard days after nine 11 moving forward. So um, on behalf of this audience, we want to, we will say thank you. And we'll be following along your story and the other um, firefighters and first responders as well. So appreciate your time today.
Well, Ryan, just want to say thank you to you and your audience. And um, a friend of mine asked me recently, he's not a firefighter. He said, do you ever get sick of talking about it? And I said, no, because it's therapeutic, which is selfish on my part. But more than that, I just don't want my friends, my beautiful friends and all of those beautiful souls that were lost that day. I just don't want them forgotten. Mm. You know, they don't teach 9-11 history in half the schools in America. And I'm actually hoping to change that, too. So thank you very much for giving me the time and the opportunity. And uh, I appreciate it. And please, just if you can, just do a little something, a little act of kindness, even if it's just a smile, goes a big way. Thank you very much. Okay. That's my interview with Mr. Jorgensen. Hop in the newsletter. Let me know where you were on 9-11 and what that event, you know, what, what memories stick out. RyanRaySenior.com slash newsletter. And we'll talk real soon.